Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We have been working our way verse by verse through the book of Proverbs. Last week we ended at Proverbs 15, I think we got as far as verse 24, so tonight we will be starting in verse 25. So open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 20, because that's actually where we're going to start. It's sort of the theme for this evening, as you know, it's been... A little challenging going through the book of Proverbs since every verse is different than the verse ahead of it or after it. And so I always look for thematic elements, which is why sometimes we jump around a bit so that we can get the full idea of what Solomon is saying about any particular topic. And as I was studying up the last week, getting ready for teaching tonight, there was a verse that just leapt out at me, and I thought, well, there is the theme for this Wednesday night. Proverbs 16, verse 20, the NASB says, he who gives attention to the word shall find good. That Hebrew word that is translated gives attention means to be prudent, to look at, to really apply your mind, to pay attention to what is being said in the word of God. So here is Solomon admonishing us to pay attention to what the word of God says. He who pays rapt attention to the word shall find the good stuff. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord If you get nothing else out of the book of Proverbs, I hope you come away with that. First, that we need to pay close attention to what the word says. Now, those of you who have been around me for very many years, which some of you have, you know that this is just one of my pet peeves. What does the word of God say? I won't rant and rave about it tonight, but... I am an avid listener. I spend a lot of time listening to sermons and listening to people talk who are purportedly representing God and his word. And I'm going to go so far as to say 85, 90% of what I hear is really nothing more than opinion. There's an awful lot of opinion being stated that is not the word of God. And Janine will tell you, I sit in front of my computer or I'm listening on a speaker. Or I've got my headsets on. I'm listening and, and I'll say, prove it. Show it to me in the Bible. What's your text? What verse are you using to state these opinions of yours? And I think you all have had experiences like that where you've been in a church, you've listened to somebody preach, and they'll perhaps open with a verse completely out of context and then say that they're going to preach that verse, and then most of what they do the rest of the hour that they're filling is sports analogies and 
stories about things that happen, fishing tales and opinions and ideas and what they think God is like, and that just frustrates the fool out of me, which is why for the nearly 19 years that we've been here at GCA, I have just kept pounding the word, pounding the word. It's why we go through books of the Bible verse by verse so that you have a greater sense, a greater knowledge of what the word of God actually says. And when you pay attention to what the word of God actually says, the word of God actually says, pay attention to what the word of God says. So that seems like something that should be really important to us. We should really give attention, pay close heed to the things that the Bible actually says. And I think, me personally, my opinion, if more preachers paid attention to what the Bible actually says, there'd be a whole lot less controversy in the church. Because most of the things that churches disagree about, most of the things that churches argue about, really are opinions. The war cry for these years that we've been here at GCA is, The Bible says what it says. Our job is to bring our thinking in line with what the Bible says. What the Bible says is authoritative. I get very tired of listening to people say the word of God is true and right and authoritative. And then they talk about everything else except the word of God. And the only way to understand the word of God is to look at it in its context, verse by verse, to understand it the way expositionally it's laid out, because these are the words and these are the ideas that God has handed down to us. So that little rant and rave should give you some sense of what the theme tonight is going to be, which is pay attention to the word of God. Now, why don't people pay attention to the word of God? Why do people become so in love with their own opinions? Because, as the word of God keeps saying, our chief problem is pride. We're just overwhelmed with pride. The most frequently mentioned sin in the Bible is the sin of pride. And it's going to be said here again as we start in chapter 15 where we left off at verse 25. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Now, that does not mean the brick-and-mortar house or the home. It means the family, the family dynasty, the family name, the heritage. That house is going to be torn down if it's proud. How many times now in the first 15 chapters of Proverbs have we seen Solomon bring up this question of pride? It must be a really, really pervasive problem if God's word keeps bringing it up that often. Before we even get done with this chapter, just a couple verses from now, verse 33 is going to say, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. We've seen that time and time again. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And before honor comes humility. So let's put those two ideas together for a moment. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud And before any lifting up, before any honor, comes humility. So God's intention in your life is to bring you to a state of humility. God will lift you up and put you in the appropriate place once he has taught you the appropriate humility. 
But if you go through your life in nothing but pride, he's going to tear you down. He's going to tear down the house of the proud. Now, by the way, let me add, it is one of the kindest, most gracious things God can do to pull your feet out from underneath you and make you realize that you're not all that, make you understand that you are utterly and completely dependent on him, that is actually one of the nicest things he can do for you. If he were to just leave you in your pride, if he never was to instruct you in humility, then you would go off into eternity thinking that it really is all about you. You would end up standing before God the same way that Jesus described it. He said there are going to be those who are going to say, Lord, Lord, haven't I done? And then they're going to list their credits. I did this. I cast out demons. I I did all these great works in your name. And he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So this idea of pride and appropriate humility permeates the scripture whether it's from the mouth of the wisdom books or whether it's from the mouth of the prophets or whether it's from Jesus himself, what we keep seeing is you've got to get over yourself. And if God loves you, he will make sure that you get over yourself. Go to chapter 16, verse 18 for just a moment, because Solomon continues this subject by saying, pride goes before destruction. Okay, well, he's already told us that God is going to tear down the house of the proud. So then, those that are proud, those that are full of their own self-sufficiency and pride, are going to end up with their house being destroyed, because pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit goes before stumbling, or a haughty spirit goes before a fall. And then verse 19 tells us, it is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly, because people who are proud, people who are arrogant, people who are full of themselves want to be leaders. They want to be in the places of the high and mighty. They want to be in the places where they have authority, where they have power over other people. But it's better, says Solomon, to be of a humble spirit with the lowly people than to divide the spoil with the proud. So again and again and again, Solomon keeps bringing up this subject of pride. And yet, I guarantee that as often as we hear it, that intrinsic human nature is going to rise up in us. And before the day is out, we're going to start thinking it's about us. Here, let's see if I can put this in practical terms. Uh, why is Mark Zuckerberg one of the wealthiest people on the planet because he created a method that perfectly suits everybody's inner narcissism. He created Facebook, which allows everybody to say whatever they want to say, and they think the world is listening. They think the world is paying attention. It's the opportunity for people to yell, look at me. And people love that. That's why Facebook is so successful. I mean, for heaven's sakes, people are so self-involved on Facebook, they actually think you care what they're eating. They take pictures of their food, and they put it on Facebook for the rest of us to see. That's how self-involved Facebook has allowed us to be. 
And all of social media works that way. I don't mean to just point out Facebook. All of social media works that way. It's an opportunity for everybody, no matter who you are. If you have a computer, if you have a phone, if you have a connection to the Internet, you can yell at everybody and say, look at me. And then the comment section. Oh, my goodness. The comment section is equally, I know stuff, too. Yeah, you said that, but look at me. I also am going to say some stuff. I can remember years ago being up at uh, Main Street, and I think Steve Wellam was lecturing that year. And uh, Elder Ward had asked if Steve would be willing to take some questions after his lecture. And he said yes, he'd, he'd be willing to do it. And Elder Ward stood up and instructed everybody in the congregation and had to say to them, now look, this is question time. Don't come to the microphone to prove you know something too. We'll just assume you know stuff. We'll just assume you're smart too. You don't have to stand up to say, well, this is my opinion and these are my thoughts. And He said, and your question, make sure it's a question that pertains to what Steve is actually talking about. Don't get up here and ask how big the fish was that swallowed Jonah. That's not what he's talking about. Now, why did he have to make that speech to people? Because we're all chuckling about it. We're all smiling, going, yeah, that's right, that's right. Well, why does he have to make that speech? Because it is such an intrinsic part of our nature and character as egocentric people that we always want to say, look at me. I know stuff, too. I'm also somebody you should pay attention to. Solomon keeps stressing that God resists that kind of pride. And he gives grace to the humble. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud. And by contrast, chapter 15, verse 25, the contrast is, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. The widow would have been somebody completely humble, somebody who doesn't have a husband. Usually that means they're relatively impoverished. If they have any land, that land is designated by boundaries, and they would put up stones, boundary stones. Part of the law says, don't move a boundary stone. If land belongs to somebody and it's already been bound off, don't move that stone and pretend that that land is now yours. And so God says, as opposed to tearing down the house of the proud, he's going to establish what belongs to a really impoverished person like a widow. So the picture is very plain. If you're proud, God is resisting you. But if you're dependent on God, he will establish you. Verse 26. <coughs> Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord. Now, several of these verses here at the end of this chapter we've actually looked at in the last two weeks because we've been making these kind of connections as we've gone through this chapter. But you will remember that we touched on verse 26 last week when we were talking about the various things that Solomon says are an abomination to the Lord. For instance, back in verse 9, we read, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Before that, we read in verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And just planning, just making wicked plans, plans to hurt somebody, plans to cheat somebody, 
plans to do damage to somebody else. Those evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are just, are right, are pure. I think I told you last week that that's a word that actually comes from metallurgy. It means without any kind of dross, without any tarnishing, it's like a pure metal. That's what pleasant, good, productive words are. So verse 27, he who profits, he who gets rich illicitly troubles his own house. Same idea, not the brick and mortar. He's troubling his own family. He's troubling his own descendants because his gain is ill-gotten gain. He who profits illicitly is going to trouble his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. So by looking at the contrast, we have a better sense of what the first sentence really means. Because he who hates a bribe, uh, remember that Solomon is a judge. Remember that Solomon, as the king, one of his chief jobs is to judge between people. And one of the ways to get a judge or a king on your side is to bribe him. And so he's saying that would be unfair, that would be illicit, that would be unjust. Therefore, he who hates the bribe is going to live. But the one who profits by taking a bribe, he who profits illicitly, is going to trouble his own house. When we get to chapter 16, which we'll at least get a a bit of tonight, when we get to chapter 16, he's going to speak at greater length about the requirements of what it is to be a king and how a king ought to act properly. This runs along those same lines. A king, a judge, anybody else should not be profiting illicitly. They should not be bribable. And that takes us to verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. We looked at that last week under the heading of a gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. We talked about how it's necessary to stop when you're in a heated argument. Just stop, pause, think about what you're going to say next. Think about what your next words are going to be. We talked last week about how some people don't listen And in fact, when they're listening to you talk, they're really just thinking about what they're going to say next. They're not listening actively to what you're saying. They're not trying to understand what you're talking about. They're just very interested in themselves. It's another aspect of human pride. But a true heart, a genuine heart, an intelligent person, somebody who's wise, somebody who fears the Lord, that kind of person, a righteous heart, is going to ponder how to answer. Going to think about their answer before they say some stupid thing. But fools, of course, don't do that. They don't think about how to answer. The mouth of the wicked just pours out whatever wicked thing was in their heart. Notice also, as we mentioned last week, that Jesus was right when he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A pure heart, a righteous heart is going to speak forth helpful things, a good answer, and they're going to be well thought out before they speak. But because a wicked person has a wicked heart, he's just going to pour out of his mouth the wicked things that are within him. And that takes us to verse 29. 
The Lord is far from the wicked, and he hears the prayers of the righteous. This is another verse we touched on last week and the week before. But he who hears, God who hears the prayers of the righteous, is far away from the wicked. I think what Solomon is drawing here is the contrast between the intimacy of a God who hears your prayers. Remember that Jesus said, when you pray, you go into a closet, you close the door, and you pray to your Father in secret. Your Father who hears you, even in that secret place, there's intimacy to that kind of prayer. But he doesn't even come close to the wicked. So it's a question of intimacy, of closeness, and of course of God resisting the wicked and paying attention to the prayers of the righteous. I have emphasized time and time again, as Solomon has mentioned, the necessity of prayer and the intimacy of prayer with God. I keep saying that is an astounding privilege. Why would you ever neglect such a privilege? If you know that the God of the universe, the God who made everything, the God who is infinite and glorious, the God who is sovereign over all things, if you know that he's willing to pay attention to your hurt, to your pain, to your troubles, to you, as Paul says, to you going and bringing your petitions before God with thanksgiving, if he's willing to incline his ear to you, why would you ever neglect that? I had somebody ask me recently, why do you pray to a God who's sovereign? You're the guy who says he's a sovereign God. If he's sovereign, then he's already determined the end from the beginning, and your prayers aren't going to change anything, so why would you pray to a sovereign God? And I answered, why wouldn't you pray to a sovereign God? A God who's not sovereign isn't going to be any help. Why pray to him? He better ask me to do stuff. He better ask me to make a decision. You better ask me to validate him. A truly sovereign God is a God who can actually help in time of trouble. I, I pray to a sovereign God because that's the only God that's in the Bible. And a truly, genuinely sovereign God who hears the prayers of the righteous, that is an astounding privilege that he has laid ahead of us. And we really ought to take full advantage of that. Last week, we looked at verse 30. Bright eyes gladden the heart. I told you that that's like when your eyes open really wide, when you're surprised or happy, when you've heard good news, then your eyes become bright. Bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news puts fat on the bones. And verse 31 says, He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Solomon is saying here that there is reproof, there is correction, there is appropriate correction coming your way in this lifetime for two reasons. There are two reasons that there's life-giving reproof coming your way. Number one is you need it. And number two is God's word is meant to reprove you. That's what Paul tells us. Every word of scripture is God-breathed and is useful for reproof, for correction in righteousness, for, for teaching, for training us. That is the purpose of God's word. Therefore, life-giving reproof exists. And a wise man, a smart man, will pay attention to that reproof. Nobody, especially Marilyn, but nobody likes to be corrected. 
I just guessed that one. I, I don't know. Nobody, especially Steve, nobody likes to be... Okay, really close to true. Okay. Nobody likes to be reproved. Nobody wants to be corrected. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. It's really difficult to have the kind of humility in your heart where you're willing to accept appropriate reproof. But the God who loves you, the God who gave you his word, will, by his word and by the people he has given you in your life, who also have the wisdom of God in them, they're going to give you the appropriate reproof. And if you take that reproof, Solomon says, you're going to dwell among the wise. But look at verse 32. He who neglects discipline, which is what reproof is. Reproof is a form of discipline. There are all kinds of disciplines in this life. It doesn't just mean being spanked by your parents. If you're slacking at the job, and you get docked or you get uh, fired. That's a discipline. That's a reproof in your life. That's showing you something about your own character. And if you neglect that discipline, if you learn nothing from that discipline, then Solomon says, you despise yourself. In other words, that life-giving reproof, that life-giving discipline was put in your way on purpose. And if you neglect it, if you learn nothing from it, then you're just making your own life worse. You're just hating yourself. He who neglects discipline despises himself. But he who listens to reproof, that life-giving reproof that he was just mentioning, he who listens to reproof acquires Understanding, that is the value of reproof and discipline, is that you come away with greater understanding of yourself, of your relationship to other people, of your own character, of your work ethic, of the way people see you. Look, if nobody ever reproves you, if nobody ever corrects you, if nobody ever tells you the way you're coming across, you're not going to know. Somebody has to be brave enough to step up and say, you know... You're hurting people. You know, you're doing damage. Have you looked around lately? Have you noticed how people avoid you? Somebody has to love you enough to correct you, to reprove you. God's word will reprove you. People who love you will reprove you. People of wisdom will reprove you. And if you listen to that reproof, you acquire understanding. And then verse 33 which is thematic to everything we've seen in the book of Proverbs so far. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here he says the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. How are you going to get wisdom? How are you going to get understanding in this life? Well, it starts with the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord, the reverence of God and his word, paying attention to God and what he has said is the way that you are going to gain wisdom. Wisdom, that is instruction to wisdom, which is, again, why here at GCA we just keep pounding the word, because that is the instruction for genuine wisdom. Genuine wisdom, real wisdom, the kind of wisdom that will carry you from here to eternity. doesn't matter how much other stuff you know. It doesn't matter what other knowledge you have. It doesn't matter how many people are impressed by how well you can do math, for instance. You can know all kinds of stuff, 
And it's facts, it's figures, but it's not genuine wisdom. Genuine wisdom starts with the reverence of God. That kind of wisdom carries you off into eternity. That's the genuine wisdom. That's the important wisdom. That's the wisdom that has genuine value to your soul. So the word of God is going to instruct you in that kind of wisdom. And the fear, the reverence of the Lord is instruction for wisdom. And this chapter ends with, but before honor comes humility. And that, I think, is part of the instruction of the Lord. You have to know that before God honors you, before he takes you to heaven, before he listens to your prayers, before he honors you in any way, He's going to humble you. He's going to teach you. He's going to give you the wisdom to know that you're really not all that. Okay, that was all introduction because that got us to the end of chapter 15, and it took us three weeks to get through chapter 15, and several times tonight I've already said, well, we talked about that last week. So now we're at chapter 16. Chapter 16 of the book of Proverbs is one of the places where I actually agree with the chapter division here because you're going to notice a a change in the character of the writing. Up until now, most of the couplets that we have read have been contrasting. In other words, we've read a statement and then the opposite of it. Wisdom looks like this, foolishness looked like that. But as we continue through chapter 16 and into chapter 17, we're going to see some new versions of these couplets. Some of them are just going to be completions of a thought. And we're also going to see comparisons where the first line and the second line are saying the same thing in a comparative way. And we're going to see, which is really helpful, more structure, for instance, The first nine verses here of chapter 16 all have to do with our relationship with the Lord. Nine whole verses in a row that all have that as a topic, which makes my job much, much easier because we're not jumping from topic to topic. And then the next six verses all have to do with what it is to be king and how a king ought to be fair. So we're going to see a a different kind of structure to the way that these Proverbs were collected and written out. To read the first nine verses of chapter 16, you have to understand Solomon's perspective theologically because it's going to jump off the page. I've already mentioned that the God of the Bible is a sovereign God. If you don't believe that, these next nine verses are really going to irritate you because you can't understand what Solomon is saying in the next nine verses unless you understand that God is sovereign because Solomon is going to say things that could only apply to a completely sovereign God. If you think that God is kind of wishy-washy or God can't really do things unless we let him, If you think that God is waiting up there in heaven, wringing his great eternal hands, hoping that some human being somewhere will validate him, well, that's that's not going to work in the next nine verses that we're going to read. Start, in fact, in verse 2, because verse 2 will actually help us understand verse 1. Verse 2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. But the Lord weighs the motives. 
all the ways of a man, everything that a man does, are clean in his own sight. We see this all the way through the Bible. The human ability to justify ourselves. Whatever we do, we're right. You might do the same thing, you're wrong. But if I do it, I'm right. Because after all, it's me. I don't like the way you gossip. I don't like the way you tailbear. I don't like the way you stab people in the back. But when I do it, I have a reason. Because I care more deeply than you. And I'm trying to help. And I, You understand what I'm saying? People just have this astounding way of justifying themselves. And there is a way, the way of every man... It's clean in his own sight. He thinks whatever he's doing, however he's living his life, whatever he's doing, it must be right. Because if he really believed that it was wrong, if he believed that it was incorrect, if it was impure in his own mind, he wouldn't be doing that. He'd be doing something else. The reason that people do and say and think the way they do is because they think it's okay. They think it's all right. All the ways of a man are self-justified. They are clean in his own sight. But the Lord weighs out the motives. He takes a look at your heart. Why are you doing the things you are doing? And God judges based on what he knows about your heart. Later in this same chapter, look at verse 25. Solomon says, There is a way which seems right to a man. The words, which seems, are added by the translator. The Hebrew statement would be more like, there is a way right to man. Same idea. Whatever people do, whatever humans do, we just assume that it's the right way to go. Otherwise, we wouldn't go that way. We're living out our lives, busily self-justifying ourselves because we're convinced that our way is right. Your way may be questionable. Your way may be wrong. I can certainly drive holes through the way you live. I can certainly point out all your faults and sins. But my way, my way is right. Look what Solomon says about it. And the end is the way of death. If you believe that all your ways and everything you do are right and correct and clean, then you have that same pride problem we've been talking about. And if you're full of pride, the end result of the way that you think is right, the way that you're busy self-justifying, that way leads to death. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. But the Lord weighs out the motives. Verse 3 says... Commit your works to the Lord, and that's how your plans will be established. Your plans, your thoughts, your determinations, how you think your life is going to go, is only going to work out in a positive way for you. Your plans will only be established if they're committed to God. The Bible says whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you're doing, however you're living out your life, commit your way to God. That's the only way that your life can be established. Now we can go back and look at verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to a man. It's the same idea. A man makes plans in his own heart. A man determines what he's going to do. 
Think about this in terms of how James says it. James says that you ought not to say, I'm going to do thus and so. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to a certain city. I'm going to get some riches for me. I'm going I'm to do this. This is my plan. This is how I'm going to work. James says, no, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, I will do thus and so. Because the Lord's will always overrides what you think you're going to do. Whatever plan you've made, whatever determination you have, if it's different than what God has decided for you, you're going to go God's way regardless of what you thought. Has anybody here had a plan in your life that went awry? I think we all have. We've all made plans in our heart, and we thought, this is the way it's going to go. This is the way my life's going to go. I planned to be six foot two and blonde. That was always my plan. That didn't work out. I planned, being more serious, I planned to be a rock star. That was my plan A. I gave it a good shot. That's what I was after. God decided, no, you're not going to do that. In fact, you're going to stand in a pulpit with a microphone on and teach my word to people. That was not my plan. That was not what I was thinking I was going to do with my life. But God's plan, because he's sovereign and I'm not, God's plan wins out. The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In order to understand that statement, we have to understand how many times Solomon has already talked about how important it is to give a good answer, to give a thought out answer, to give a helpful answer, to give words that are pure, that lift up, that build people up. If that's the kind of answer that comes off your tongue, then that's from the Lord. You might make your own plans. You might have your own intentions. You might want to go yell at people and give them a piece of your mind, doggone it, because everybody on the planet deserves to know what I think. You might think that it is okay for you to go around screaming, look at me all the time. That may be the plan of your heart. But if you, in your wickedness, in your depravity, in your sinfulness, if you say good things to people, if you lift people up, if you come alongside and you build up people, if you have a good word for the hurting, if you have an instructive word to people who need instruction, if you have a proper reproof to people, when you're speaking those words, that, Solomon says, is from God. That's from the Lord. Those answers didn't come out of you. You're busy building your own plan. You're busy doing the desires of your heart. But if you're answering well to people, that's God working through you. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Okay, now a moment ago I said, you can't read these nine verses without understanding that God is sovereign. At very least, you have to understand that Solomon believes that God is sovereign. By that, I mean God does whatever God wants to do, 
And he does it with anybody he wants to do it. He does it as many times as he wants to do it. Anywhere, anytime, anyhow that God wants to do it. God always does what he wants to do. David wrote in the Psalms, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's what I mean by sovereign. Because if you don't have that kind of concept of God, you're really going to hate verse 4. Because verse 4 says, the Lord has made everything For its own purpose. When we began the book of Proverbs, we read, to everything, there's a time and a purpose. God has a particular time and a particular reason for everything he does. Then Solomon goes through the list, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather them together. He goes through all these different things and says, God has a purpose for everything that he has created. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Everything in God's economy has a purpose. Everything that exists, exists because God decided it was going to exist. And it all serves his purpose. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. That's a tough one for people. Especially when you say, well, the devil exists because God decided the devil would exist. The only reason that Satan was not immediately cast into the abyss back in the Garden of Eden, as soon as he tempted the woman, as soon as he brought sin into the world, God could have at that moment just cast him into the abyss, put the great eternal chain on him, cover him up, and there, done with that. We don't have to worry about that anymore. God didn't do that because the existence of Satan and sin in the world serves his purpose. Otherwise, he would have done it. We read the book of Revelation. He's going to do it. Michael's going to come down and put a big chain on him and throw him into the abyss and keep him locked up there for a thousand years. And then let him out for a little while. Why? Because that serves God's purpose. That's what God determined to do. He's already told us that's what he's going to do. And then he's going to go and gather the armies and Gog and Magog, and then there's going to be a war, and then God's going to wipe them all out. Why? Because that's what God has determined for Satan to do. Look at the second half of verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. God made the wicked for the day of evil. The day of evil, the day of judgment, the day of sin, the day of all these problems on the planet, all of this is part of God's great eternal plan. This is part of God separating the wheat and the tares. This is part of God determining who the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are. This is God demonstrating his electing grace that he can choose some people out of the mass of ruined humanity. This is God doing exactly what God in his infinite wisdom has decided to do. He created everything according to his own purpose And he even made the wicked for the day of evil. I'm going to get email about this. And all I did was read what Solomon said. And people are going to write to me, probably in all capital letters. And they're going to write to me and they're going to say, your God's a monster. How can you believe in a God like that? Except that the Bible says that. That's why I began tonight by saying we need to pay close attention to what the Bible actually says. The Bible actually says that God even made the wicked for the day of evil. And that's an idea that we find repeatedly through the Bible. That God made the just. He made the unjust. And dogs don't become sheep. 
Goats don't become sheep. They're dogs and goats because that's the way God made them. And some people are sheep. And dogs might act like sheep for a little while. Pigs might act like sheep for a little while. But according to Jesus, they're going to go back to their mud and back to their vomit because they are pigs and dogs. They can't change what they are. Or whether you're looking at the question, can a leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? The answer is obviously no. You are what you are. God made you that way. That's what he does because he's, what's that word again? Sovereign. Because he's completely in charge of his own creation. And we, in our ego, want to think that the creation is because of us, or it's about us, or it needs to serve us. And none of that is true. The creation exists because God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself and so he made everything the way he wanted to make it for his own purposes so that he is glorified in what he made and the end result will be that he alone is glorified in everything he made and the wicked who are going to end up in the outer darkness or in the lake of fire he made them for that purpose Even the wicked for the day of evil. Verse 5. We're back to talking about pride. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. We've already looked at the fact that when evil people sacrifice, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And we would all say, yeah, get them, God. Yeah, the Wicked people sacrificing, going through the religious stuff. Yeah, that's an abomination. And we've read the way, the life, the way that they walk. The wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And we said, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, go get them. Everyone who is proud in their heart. Okay, so how many people is that? We've already talked about why Facebook is so successful. What is the primary problem, the primary sin that's repeated most often in the Bible? It's that pride thing. Why is it mentioned so frequently? Because it's that pervasive. It courses through our egocentric little beings. We're all very, very self-centered. We care more about ourselves than we do anybody else, which is why the Bible says things like, no, care about other people more than yourselves. That's Philippians 2. Look after the things of others and not after yourself. Why Jesus would say, as we just saw on Sunday, treat other people the way you want to be treated. It's important that we look outside ourselves. That we take care of other people. We put other people ahead of ourselves. It's important that we have appropriate humility because honor is not going to come until the humility comes first. Everyone who is proud in heart, I'm going to argue that's pretty much all of us. That is toy of awe. That is an abomination to the Lord. It is an abomination when human beings, sinful creatures, wormy little humans, standing up on their back legs, shaking their fists at God, that is an abomination to God. Because he's God and you're not. And the difference is enormous. Isaiah says, God speaking Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. 
As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. The Bible plainly is telling you you're not like God. God is not like you. Don't think of God in human terms or think of him the way your measly little mind can conceive of. God is so much higher and grander and holier than you that it is just abominable pride for you to think that you are somehow on his level. And that, that's an abomination to God. Humility is appropriate before God. Going to God in thanksgiving and prayer because you recognize your dependence on God, that's appropriate. But thinking that maybe your way ought to be the way that God does things? You have the plans of your own heart. You have your own intention of how you're going to live your life. That's saying to God, you don't know what you're doing. But how often have we seen things like, does the potter say to the clay, why have you made me thus? I mean, it's, it's up to the potter. It's not up to the clay, which means we're just a bunch of clay, broken pottery, a bunch of crackpots. That's really, oh, okay, fine. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and assuredly he will not be Unpunished. That's why it's so important that God break you, that God bring you to a state of humility. If he leaves you in your pride, he has no option but to punish you. Because pride always gets punished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity, our sinfulness, our shortfallenness, our inability to be God... That is atoned for. That is the word kafar. That is that caparith word that you see on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. There's that caparith, that covering that covers sin. Your sins are covered by loving kindness and truth. By the way, loving kindness and genuine truth didn't come from you. Loving kindness and genuine truth comes from God. The only way... Since we know that your pride, our sinful pride, is an abomination to God and that assuredly it's going to be punished, well, then I love the fact that the people collecting these sayings of Solomon put right after that that it's loving kindness and truth, which can only be from God. That's how iniquity, our iniquity, goes covered instead of punished. That's an astounding reality that God did punish our sin, but he punished it in Christ. And having punished it in Christ, his loving kindness, his grace, his truth, his goodness covers our iniquity, our sinfulness, even though we deserve to be punished for our abominable pride before a holy God. You understand me? It got real quiet in here. We're nearly done. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Oh, that's it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you are wise in the Lord, then you're going to avoid the evil stuff. You're going to avoid the foolish stuff. You're not going to walk in the ways of wicked people. 
You're going to walk in the ways of the Lord. Solomon has said that repeatedly. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Remember, Solomon's a king. He's king over Israel. His greatest regular fear is that the armies of his enemies are going to come attack. And yet he recognizes that the history of Israel is such that God keeps protecting his people. God fights for them. God defends them against their enemies. So when you walk by the Lord, when you pay attention to what God and his word have said, and you walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, he makes even your enemies end up at peace with you. He stops the againstness between you. Better, verse 8, here's another one of those amazing contrasts that Solomon keeps constructing. It's better to be poor or it's better to have little. It's better to just eat vegetables, but to do it in righteousness. He says, better is little with righteousness than to have great income and injustice. Yeah, it's better in this lifetime, even if you don't have much. Even if you look around at what you've got and you say, man, I'm not doing that well. My friends, my neighbors, everybody else seems to be doing better than me. I just don't have that much. He keeps saying righteousness is of great value. That is the great treasure of this life. And if you accumulate all the stuff that Bill Gates has, if you accumulate all of that and leave this planet without the covering of God's righteousness on you, you've actually gained nothing. Jesus said, what does a man gain if he's gained the whole world and loses his soul? So in fact, it's better to have very little in this life if you have little but have righteousness. And that's better than having great income in this world, but injustice. Last verse for the night. The mind of man plans his way. We've seen that now several times. The heart of man, the mind of man, by the way, in Solomon's thinking, heart and mind were basically the same thing. The heart is used as the kind of decision-making place within the human, the intention of your heart. But the heart and the mind of man plans his way, decides what he's going to do. I'm going to do thus and so. I'm determined to go do this. This is my plan. God just has to agree with me because that's what I've decided. But the second half of that verse says, but the Lord directs his steps. The Lord decides where you're going to go and what you're going to do. Look, it's a Wednesday night. It's raining out. It's Smyrna, Tennessee. It's cold out. And you people, for some reason, decided to be in church. You could be home. You could be warm. You could be watching TV. You could be snacking on ice cream right now. And yet, you got up. You got dressed. Most of you have worked long days today. Most of you are really tired. And yet you came to church on a Wednesday night with a handful of people to listen to the Proverbs of Solomon. Why? Why did you do that? It's not because that's what you determined in yourself you were going to do. It's because the Spirit of God inside you is 
causing your steps to go the way that he wants you to go in this lifetime. He hasn't left you to yourself. He hasn't left you to your own decision-making abilities and process. He instead has decided that because you are his, because he has chosen you, that he's just going to keep drawing you and drawing you and drawing you so that you keep coming back to be washed again with the word of God over and over again. And you're going to leave here and you're going to go out those doors and again you're going to pick up the dirt of this world. And you're going to pick up the uncleanness of this world. And Sunday hopefully you'll be back here again and we'll just keep washing and washing with the word of God until the day that Jesus comes to take us home. Between now and then, we're just going to keep walking in this same way because that's what God determined. He determined our steps even though we think we make our own plans. But we're going to end up right where he decided we're going to end up, which means we're going to all end up around the throne in glory. So that's a pretty good plan. I'm totally with this sovereign God deciding how I walk. I'm totally with that. I'm good with God deciding which way my feet are going to go and where my steps are going to lead me. I'm really glad because he's leading me to my eternity. And that's good for me. And it's just the opposite of everything my sinful, stupid little heart decided. And thank God he's sovereign and he wins. That's good. Questions? All right, we will pick up next week, right in chapter 16, verse 10. The divine decision is in the lips of the king, and he's going to talk about what it is to be king for a while. So you want to be here if you want to get any sense of what it would be like to be king. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.